Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, Joe's brief reprieve at Anne's was interrupted when he was summoned before the town's board of selectmen. Meanwhile, Greg Vivian returned to Tim Harvey's house, where he received a much-needed reprieve of his own, courtesy of Tim's wife. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. Joe swiveled his chair and looked out of his office window. The eastern sky had started to turn a bright pinkish red. What was the old adage? Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. He didn't need the red sky as a prompt to remind him of the political mess he'd stepped in. He was painfully aware of his own predicament, all too aware of the political red flags going up all around him. He had no doubt that the selectmen had already met informally and made their decision to pressure him into calling in the state police. When he refused, it wouldn't be Bobby Donay who called for an emergency town meeting to bring in the state police. It would be Beatrice Merriweather. And later, it would be Beatrice Merriweather who would try to force him out of office. It had been Abraham Grace, Beatrice's great-great-grandfather, who had founded the town. Beatrice Grace Merriweather's influence was felt throughout the community. Bill Bannister had been her niece's husband, and whether Beatrice liked it or not, Bill had thus become part of her family. He knew Beatrice would not take Bill's death lightly, she would try and force Joe out of office. Whoever replaced him would be someone who would be willing to do exactly what she wanted done. If Bill Bannister were still alive, he had no doubt that he would be her choice to replace him. But with his death, that option had disappeared. Given the present circumstances, Harbinger would be her next choice. Harbinger had run against him twice and lost, but he did have a constituency that was boisterous and rather hard to ignore. With the present climate of tension and fear, he knew Beatrice would have little trouble pressuring the other selectmen to consider the severity of the situation they found themselves in. He had no doubt that she'd successfully convince them to name Harbinger as interim sheriff until a new election could be held, and there would be no doubt who'd win that election. There was a soft rap on the open door. A tentative voice said, Sheriff? He had been so deep in thought that the sudden rap on the door and the sound of Eve's voice surprised him. He quickly swung around in his chair. Eve stood just inside the doorway. Even at this early hour, not a hair was out of place. 
What little makeup she wore was applied precisely. Her blazer, blouse, and skirt were clean and crisp. During the years that he'd been sheriff, Eve's grooming had always been conservative and impeccable, no matter how hot or cold the weather. She always looked as though she had just stepped out of a magazine from the 50s. Thank you for coming in early, Eve. For some reason, I couldn't get to sleep last night, and then when Ronnie called and told me about Bill, I became so upset. It might sound silly, but I think of everybody here as family, Sheriff. When Ronnie called and asked me to come in to cover the desk for him, I was relieved. Sleep was the last thing on my mind. I just couldn't sit at home and do nothing. I was glad to come in early. Thank you again, Eve. It's a big help. He pulled his chair up to his desk and fiddled with a pen lying on his blotter. I have to go over to the town hall to meet with the selectmen. May I ask why, Sheriff? I don't know their exact agenda, but I imagine it has something to do with Bill's death. Oh, Eve said, grimacing and averting her eyes. He sat up straighter in his chair, flipping his pen, sliding his fingers down along its length and flipping it again. He cleared his throat and said, Eve, I have to ask you something, and since we're alone, I might as well ask it now. Yes, Sheriff, Eve said, walking closer to his desk. He looked up into her kind eyes. Eve, someone from the station has been talking with Harbinger about what goes on here. Before he could clarify what he was saying, Joe saw the color rise in her cheeks. She had a wounded look on her face. Joe Martin, why would you think that I would ever tell that horrid little man Harbinger anything? You've known me all your life, and we've worked together long enough for you to know that I would never tell anyone what goes on here in this station. Eve, I wasn't insinuating that you would. You didn't let me finish. I'm sorry if you misunderstood what I was trying to say. He rose from his chair and walked around the desk to Eve. I'm sorry, Eve, if I've somehow offended you. I was not trying to imply that you would have done anything of the sort. I was just hoping that you could help me figure out who might. Well, you're right. I never would do such a thing. Her voice was still shaking, her face streaked with tears. Eve, I hope you'll forgive me. I haven't had much sleep. I've been out straight, and I should have phrased my statement more carefully. Eve looked up at him, the hurt still in her eyes. Yes, you should have, Joe Martin, Eve said as she turned abruptly and walked out of his office. He could hear her heels clicking determinedly against a wooden floor. Pulling his jacket from the hook on the wall and slipping it on, he realized that without meaning to, he had just alienated the one person he shouldn't have. He could kick himself for being such an insensitive jackass. He shook his head and walked out of his office. He stopped by Eve's desk. Eve? She looked up at him, tears still in her eyes. I'm sorry, Sheriff. I shouldn't have made such a fuss. It's just that I'm so upset about losing Bill. I know I just misunderstood what you were saying. I hope you'll forgive me. There's no need for forgiveness. I understand how you feel. We're all going to miss him, Joe replied. Eve pulled some tissue from the box on her desk and dabbed at her eyes. Are you sure you want to be here today? Joe asked, a note of genuine concern in his voice. I'll be fine. I I just can't sit at home doing nothing, Eve replied. Joe nodded. Okay, Eve. He took a breath before he continued and ran his hand through his hair. Ronnie is bringing in Hunter Langtree. If I'm not here, have Ronnie sit her next to his desk 
so you can watch her and send Ronnie over to get me. Don't let her give you a hard time. If she decides to leave, tell her she'll leave me no choice. I'll have to come out to the mill to ask her what I need to know. And Eve, I didn't mean to imply. I know you didn't, Eve said before he could finish. Just promise me one thing, Eve said. Sure, if I can, Joe replied. Promise me that you won't let the selectmen make you do something you don't want to do. I promise you, Eve. Good luck, Sheriff, she said with a faint smile. Eve patted his hand, the way a tired mother does with a wayward child. Oh, and by the way, Eve, that was a nice piece of detective work with the gloves. Thank you. Her faint smile broadened. The town hall in Grover's Notch faced the village green. It sat about 200 yards to the right and below the small hill where the church prominently stood. On the far side of the town hall was a large gravel parking lot, and just beyond that the small library that had once been the two-room schoolhouse. The town hall, a white, two-story clabbered building, had been erected in 1875. It had been left relatively untouched, except for minor repairs and the metal roof that had been added in the late 1990s to cut down on the expense of upkeep. On the first floor was a large meeting hall that doubled as a general purpose room for town functions. On the second floor were the town clerk's office, a meeting room for the Daughters of the American Revolution, and the town selectman's office. Down the hall from the town selectman's office was a small room where the ladies' auxiliary met to do their charitable work for the community. It was 6.45 when Joe stepped out of his cruiser. He recognized all four of the vehicles parked in the lot next to the town hall. The white-paneled van with Bobby's electric and plumbing stenciled on the back and sides belonged to Donay. Curtis Glover's grocery truck was parked next to Donay's van. Across the gravel lot, a respectable distance away, sat Beatrice Merriweather's forest green SUV, and next to it, Richard Harbinger's 1966 red and white Corvette reflected the first soft rays of the November sun. He knew that Gordy Holt wouldn't be there. He was still in the hospital recovering from a coronary. His son Gary was running the hardware store for him until he recovered. The last selectman, Prescott Pope, of Pope Realty, was in Florida on one of his working vacations. Joe tugged at the heavy door. Its creaky hinges echoed throughout the quiet interior as it opened with a shutter. A cold, musty smell of wood over a century old permeated the air. There were two staircases, one to his left and one to his right. Joe arbitrarily chose the one to his right. As he climbed the steps, he hoped that he had examined every argument he could possibly think of. He knew that the position he held was purely subjective, but he also knew that he was right. He was the sheriff of Grover's Notch, and it was his responsibility to protect and serve the people who had elected him. That included solving murders. He was going to fight bringing in the state police, but if he had to capitulate, he was going to make damn sure that he remained in charge. He quietly opened the door to the town selectman's office. He stood there silently. He found Elaine Stoddard, the part-time secretary for the town selectman, at her desk just outside the closed conference room. Usually, Elaine was very organized when it came to the town's business. 
For some reason this morning, she seemed distracted. He stood watching her. She seemed preoccupied with something in her desk. He could hear several metal objects rolling around in the bottom of the desk drawer. She muttered to herself as she tried to retrieve them. She must not have heard him walk in. If she did, she didn't bother to look up. He quietly closed the door behind him and walked towards her. When he reached her desk, he saw a nickel-plated, pearl-handled, semi-automatic twenty-five caliber pistol lying on her green blotter. Elaine, what are you doing? he asked in a concerned voice. She glanced up at him with a surprised look on her face. Oh, Sheriff, you, you gave me such a start. I'm trying to put these bullets into this, what is this called, this clip? She spilled the bullets onto the blotter and held the clip up like a child seeking help from an adult when encountering a difficult puzzle. But this arthritis doesn't let my hands work right when it's cold. Do you really think you need that? He reached out and took the clip away from her. George told me to carry this with me because there's a killer running loose out there. He said it's not safe. But Elaine, you only live half a block from here. But George said that most people are killed close to home. Did he also tell you that they are usually killed by family members or close friends? Really? Her face relaxed a little and she smiled. I don't know anyone in my family or any one of my friends who would want to kill me. She sat back in her chair with a sigh of relief. Joe reached across the desk, picked up the gun, gathered the bullets up one by one, and slipped them into his pocket along with the clip. Tell George to come down to the station, and he can pick these up, he said. Thank you, Sheriff. He nodded and smiled. No, thank you. Are they all in there, Elaine? She turned her head, glanced at the closed door, and turned back to face him. Yes, all those who are coming, they're waiting for you. Joe opened the door and stepped inside. The four of them were seated at a long conference room table just opposite a brick fireplace. Joe, uh, we're glad you could come. Why don't you have a seat? Bobby Donay said, motioning to an empty chair across the table from them. He sat down and waited for Donay to continue. The reason we're here today, Joe, is because of what's been going on these last few days. I'll get right to the point, Donay said, leaning forward. We're concerned that things are getting out of hand. First the Dalton girl and now Bill Bannister. Things are getting pretty dicey and we're just not sure you can handle all of this by yourself. Like you said, it's only been a few days. There's no one in law enforcement that I know of who can solve a murder in just a few days, Joe replied. What about Bill's death last night? Harbinger asked. Joe ignored Richard Harbinger's question. There was an uncomfortable silence. It became apparent that he wasn't going to answer Harbinger. Well, Joe, what about Bannister's death? Curtis Glover asked, finally breaking the silence. Bill Bannister didn't follow procedure, and that got him killed. When he saw Greg Vivian, he should have called in for backup. If he had, he'd probably still be alive. Are you saying it was Bill's own fault he's dead? Harbinger blurted out. Joe leaned forward and glared at Harbinger. I don't remember you being elected as a selectman. Why are you here? Joe asked. I asked him to come to this meeting, Beatrice replied frankly. Joe leaned back in his chair and looked closely at Beatrice and the other selectmen. Then kindly ask him to keep his mouth shut. He has nothing to say at this meeting. I don't have to answer to him. 
Don't get all hot under the collar, Joe, Bobby Donay said. We're just trying to find out what you're going to do. See, that's the kind of attitude we don't need. He's unwilling to work with people, Harbinger whined. Shut up, Richard, Donay said roughly. Joe's right. You're not a selectman. And as head selectman, unless I ask for your input, you'll kindly keep your mouth shut. Joe watched as Harbinger looked at Beatrice. She put her index finger to her lips and shook her head. Harbinger sank back in his chair, a grimace on his face. I'm sorry you were interrupted, Joe. Now go ahead and tell us what you intend to do, Donay said. What I've decided to do is call Sam Fox and ask to use some of his men. They would join me and my deputies so we can comb the woods and catch Vivian. You've already done that, and it got Norm and Dennis injured, Harbinger countered. Are you going to chain that monkey or am I going to have to shut his mouth for him, Joe asked angrily. One more word from you, Richard, and I'll have to ask you to leave, Donay said in exasperation. Richard has a point. Joe already sent a search party into those woods, Beatrice said evenly. And now two men are in the hospital and the town's picking up the bill. I don't want any more mishaps. That's why I'm asking to use Fox's men for this search. And why shouldn't we just turn the whole thing over to Fox? Beatrice asked. Joe looked directly into her eyes, his brows drawn tightly together, his voice strong and forceful. Because I'm the sheriff of this town, and until that changes, I'm still responsible for making decisions concerning the safety and well-being of the citizens of Grover's Notch. Beatrice's green eyes flashed and narrowed. Donay scurried to try and smooth things over. So what you're saying is that you intend to bring Sam Fox in on the investigation? Bobby Donay asked. No, what I'm saying is that I'm going to use Fox's men, Joe replied. I don't see a problem with that, Donay said, looking first at Curtis Glover and then at Beatrice Merriweather. It's fine with me, Curtis Glover said, shrugging his shoulders. Beatrice's auburn brows furrowed, her eyes darkened, looking like a cat readying herself to pounce on her prey. Beatrice asked, I just want to clarify one thing, Joe. Who will be in charge of the investigation? I'll remain in charge of the investigation, Joe replied confidently. There was a moment of silence. Joe knew each of them was trying to decide if they could live with what he was shoving down their throats. Beatrice drew in a deep breath and pursed her lips. She sat back in her chair, a smug look on her face. He could feel her green eyes boring into him. I'll go along with you staying in charge only if you can produce the killer within the next 48 hours. If you haven't apprehended him by then, I'll have Sam Fox take over this investigation. Then I'm going to call for a special town meeting, and I'm going to do everything in my power to have you removed from office. She looked at Donay and then at Glover. They both nodded in agreement. Agreed, Joe said without any hesitation in his voice. There was a knock. The door opened and Elaine stepped into the room. I'm sorry to interrupt, she turned to Joe. Sheriff, uh, Ronnie Boucher is here. He says he needs to speak with you. It's important. Thank you, Elaine, Joe said, rising from his chair. I'm assuming we're finished for now, he asked, addressing his question to Donay. Not quite, Sheriff. What about that juvenile delinquent, Jasper Hemphill? I intend on pressing charges for the damage he did to my property. I want him punished, Beatrice replied with obvious contempt before Donay could answer. I would like for you and Jasper's mother to talk before you press charges, Joe replied. I won't change my mind. Perhaps not. 
but I would still like the meeting to take place. I think it would be best for everyone concerned, Joe replied evenly. And when is this meeting supposed to take place? Would you consider giving me a couple of days? There are some rather pressing matters that I have to attend to first. She glared at him. Eve will be in contact with you, Joe added. He could feel her piercing green eyes following him as he turned and left the room. And now a preview of our next episode. With Hunter Langtree in the hot seat, will she give Joe the information he so desperately needs to make an airtight case against Greg Vivian? How will she react when she learns of Bill's murder? Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, Exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.